call the house again. Tell them that the mouse is in. Yellow brick it, I split them O's up. You asked them out for men. Counsel that I'm probably not gonna mount this shit. It's common sense. Look at all this trouble that my filthy mouth and got me in. I'm stanky rich, bank is rich, pocket tees with handkerchiefs. Used to see that glass half full. Started to drink the shit. Switching a little with Brenda when I was a baby. Still in the thank the picture. Philly nigga at the pocket the clock and Jada Peck and Smith. I'm cold. Pop a past the pocket stature. That might go double rings. Apollo Creed, I'm rocking back up. Cause antivirus ain't gonna stop the maid. Hey guys, welcome back to Block Channel. We're back for episode 66. We've had quite a long season this season. Uh, speaking to you know a wide array of different influencers in the space, developers, uh, speculators, investors, etc. And today is no different. Uh, I think we have a really awesome uh, set of guests on today, working on uh, a very interesting. Um, series of like technologies that I think will really help bridge like crypto and like DeFi into the real world and tangibly into people's hands. But we'll get back to more of that in a moment. Um, but this week I am joined with uh, my co-host, Dr. Corey Petty uh, from the Bitcoin podcast. Corey, can you give yourself an introduction to the audience, please? What's up, y'all? Y'all know me, Dr. Corey Petty. Uh, I love talking on blockchain. That a decent, it's a good, pretty good introduction. Awesome, <laughs> uh, and of course, and, and, and of course, we've got some really awesome guests this week. So let's just go ahead and keep this introduction short, so you can get into the gritty of what it is we want to talk about. Uh, I'm joined by both Paul and Cameron, um, co-founders of a company called Kong Cash. Um, and before we get into kind of what Kong is and why I'm excited about the company and why they're on our show today. Um, Cameron or Paul, can one of you guys sort of just take the lead on giving us a background on more on who you are um, uh, as people and, and sort of like humanize yourselves a little bit before we talk about all the cool technology you guys are working on? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, so this is Cameron and Paul, and and we we have a history working together on secure IoT products for the last decade or so. Um, we built this smartphone controlled door lock sold that company just about a year ago and realized that there's you know not a lot of folks working on super interesting hardware in the crypto space outside of wallets and we thought making crypto tangible is actually really important so that people can get a better grasp of what it is and actually start to use it for things like buying goods and and services out in the world um and and so my my personal background with crypto is that i i heard about it in 2009 from a mailing list um set up the client on my computer on my old MacBook back then, tried to mine a block, it spun up my fan too much. And I'm like, you know what, screw this, forget about it. <laughs> and then came back, back around and did, did a little bit of GPU mining in 2011 before um, our company got too busy. And, and, you know, I still have my GPU miner, but didn't really, didn't really get anything out of it before, before setting aside. And, and then got a little bit more interested in, at the intersection between hardware and, and crypto around 2016, 2017. Yeah, so uh, this is Paul. Uh, I grew up in South Africa. Uh, we had a little import electronics business that my family ran there for a while, but it was always pretty hard to get uh, electronics imported into the country. Um, fast forward about uh, 10 years, was in, uh, got into like PlayStation hardware chip hacking and Xbox One hacking. So I was always in the game console scene, trying to put various mod chips on these computers and just realizing that uh, the silicon is kind of where, where all this stuff is at. In terms of experience with cryptocurrencies, I think I try to buy some Dragon Ball Z bootlegs on VCD format using eGold in 2001. And then, uh, <laughs> nice, nice. That was the nerdiest sentence. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, uh, Toonami was was playing Dragon Ball Z, but they were really dragging it out. It was like one episode per week, and they had these super long fight scenes. <laughs> <That's laughs> we awesome. figured we'd just get get some VCDs from Japan and cut to the chase. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's, that, that was a different world. But uh, yeah, so that, that whole like scene got me turned on to electrical engineering and uh, doing crypto stuff for basically firmware security and uh, was was basically spent the last 10 years trying to figure out how to store secrets on physical electronic devices uh, in a rad way that they can't be extracted. So, and, uh, and that being said, how did you and Cameron uh, find each other as founders? Oh, yeah. So um, I went to school at the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder, and that's where I met uh, a couple of people in the crypto scene and the, the uh, tech scene, and that's where I met Cameron. Yep, you know, yep. So also, <laughs> yeah, I was also at the University of Colorado and and so we were we met in Boulder and and kind of found that we really wanted to hack on interesting hardware products and we we came out to Silicon Valley in 2009 and yeah, I guess we've been through sort of a whole cycle and so the the summer that we came out in 2009 was the summer that everybody was talking about this this mysterious bitcoin and we kind of like were intrigued by it but we're, we're sucked into um, eventually building our door lock product, as, as Paul noted, which was fundamentally all about key storage as well. Uh, so it, 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 it <laughs> got it. us to really think about like, you know, and, and it, it, it's funny about digital keys, not, not just physical keys. We always joke, we're like, oh, yeah, it's all about key storage, but it's really, really <laughs> about like, yeah, like how do you securely store keys? And, and so ultimately, we've, we did a lot of thinking about that problem in a very different domain space, but realized you know, it translates very, very well into to cryptocurrency storage. So that being said, um, so you worked on this digital, you know, lock startup, you know, exited that. And then so you, you kind of went back to the drawing table and you're like, all right, what do we want to build now? <laughs> to walk, walk Corey and I kind of like through how you got to the point of maybe we should uh, counterfeit some money. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> just kidding. And work backwards from there. Like, just well, tell, us, tell us the mental, like, kind of hops you got to get to that. Yeah. So, so honestly, it started before we wrapped up. Uh, Lockatron was the company that we worked on. We actually had, um, we, were, we were thinking about it in, in late 2016, and we had folks like, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Slocket project. Yeah, uh, they were a tool. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We all, uh, all hold of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so actually, those guys reached out and they're like, "Hey, you have door locks with an API. We want to hook them up to the blockchain so that anybody can rent spaces, you know, with crypto." And we're like, "That's a crazy idea." Uh-huh. And it kind of pulled us back into it. And we're like, "Oh, this is really fascinating. Like, we should be really looking closely at this." And so we already were starting to think of different ideas and and thinking about what the key problems were um, for us to tackle around that point in time. Um, but we were selling our product, uh, the, the lock product into retail stores and just kind of dealing with that full time. So, so when we, when we exited Lockatron, we had a very clear path of like, yeah, like there are some significant problems in crypto with people, um, handling it tangibly and, and how the keys are anchored are, you know, is fundamentally problematic. You know, we're creating all these layers of trust in software and firmware with existing hardware wallets. And we thought, you know, we can do better. And we started playing around with a lot of ideas, ultimately coming to the realization that um, to broaden trust in the space, we need to look down to a a chip and a silicon level Um, because you can have the greatest open source key storage library in firmware. 
Um, but if that's living on a broken chip, then anybody can extract the key material. And, and so we said, you know, let's think about how can we create um, simple crypto products which are anchor using chip level guarantees um, and get the entire space thinking about uh, how these chips could be more secure. You know, um, I've often said that, like, if we if, if, if we get one thing out of the cryptocurrency space and it's usable cryptography, um, people actually using um, public and private keys effectively for various applications, then we've done a pretty good job. And then all everything else is, is, is butter on top. Like how, and a good portion of that, which I feel you two would agree with, is how they're actually stored on things. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about like what are the obvious issues when trying to store uh, keys on on hardware devices? Yeah, definitely. So, so the 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 primary concern around key storage is not necessarily just key storage, but key generation. Like, where where does the key come from in the first place? How mm -hmm. is it getting generated on the device? Like, what piece of software is doing that? And that means you have to have a decent source of entropy. So you have to worry about generating the keys and then entropy. And then on top of that, so let's just say that we have like, you know, perfectly formally verified software doing that. And we can say, cool, like we know that these keys are being generated and entropy is coming from um, a, re a truly random source or, or um, a seed that we can't extract. Then uh, we have to make sure that, you know, there's not going to be some side, side channel attack to leak those keys. Um, and, and so like all those things coming together, it's like, you know, you have incredible guys who are hacking on hardware, doing all these demonstrations against existing hardware wallets saying, yeah, because all the, the stuff that they're doing is, is at a software level and ledgers and treasures and, and so forth. Um, you just have these software level attacks where you can, uh, basically go in there and, uh, create a, a false firmware build and then extract the key material. Um, and so, so without getting too technical, basically a person ha is, is left having to trust all of the software and all the silicon and this huge stack. It's a black box. They're just given this black box and they're told like, yep, here's this thing, here's your key storage. And, and I think the result is that many people, um, they take the opposite side and they say, you know what, I'm just going to delegate my keys to somebody else, kind of going against the whole point of of crypto in the first place and 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 broader decentralization. I'm I'm too worried that like I'm going to lose my keys. I'm too worried that these devices are hacked and I'm just going to go leave my crypto on an exchange and we all know how that sort of turns out in the long run um, looking, you know, back at Mt. Gox and other stuff. Um, and so I think I think the 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 problem is today the the stack is too deep to trust it. And the result is for most people, it's easier to delegate their key storage problem to somebody else. Obvious question yeah. there. Um, sorry, Paul, did you have something to follow up with? Oh yeah, I was just gonna touch on that a little bit, but like human beings fundamentally need to think about this stuff in terms of abstractions and they don't really care necessarily what's in the black box so long as it's got a little green check mark on it that it hasn't been tampered with. And if you can build up a, a, a pile of these boxes and it's check marks all the way down, you're good. But the current the current solutions in the space don't have check marks all the way down. They kind of stop somewhere around the BIOS level for the most part across a lot of these devices. And even just thinking at like mechanical door lock keys that are physical metal keys that go into a door, nobody thinks about that's actually a password that's five uh, like seven digit numbers on it. They just think of it. Oh, this is this unique magical object I hold that only works for me 
and not for anybody else unless they have an exact copy of it. And that's that's how it should be. But it's just the entropy of a metal key is like the equivalent of a one character password. And really, we need the equivalent of 256 character passwords for uh, most of our applications. I think it's interesting that you guys are working on these things, having come from like the physical like home lock space, because you guys probably think about security in a lot more different ways than say like Trezor or Ledger are, right? Because they're just worried about like storing cryptographic keys and making that as secure as possible. You guys have like have like sound experience and like making sure people don't want to get in people's homes, how people think about those things. So not only that, you're also thinking about, you know, you know, a, you know, asymmetric cryptography. How do you do this correctly? How do you whatever? But at the same time, it's like, cool it's like what is the mindset of a person to like know that their their money or their home is secure um so like that being said like you guys are working on like this cash like bill and um and i believe like a java card um like device too can you just sort of walk us through like your different products on how you're approaching this yeah yeah so uh <laughs> we're chuckling at at you referencing java card um because we have very strong opinions about java card Oh, oh okay, awesome. okay, sorry, so, sorry. Oh, awesome. oh, excellent. My company is making yep. a Java card. Let's hear it. I yes. want to hear all about it. Yes, yeah, yeah. So talk talk uh, uh, all the crap you want. <laughs> well, I'm just going to cut in here quickly and say, uh, as you may have gathered, we, we're pretty anti-software at this yeah, company. Yeah, I can, I can see that. We, we like we like physical things. So, Cameron, I'll let you jump in there. Yeah. So, so backing up for a second, um, let, let's just really do a high high level description on on Kong Cash. Yeah. So, Kong is physical crypto cash. And, and it's this weird sort of hybrid. And I, I say it's weird because even for us, when we touched the first one, we're like, wow, this is physical crypto cash. And the way it achieves that is by, by anchoring the guarantees of the key storage um, at a chip level. So Kong Cash uh, looks like a bill. It's denominated. Um, we have denominations from one to 500. And each bill is backed by a non-custodial smart wallet on chain which stores a token corresponding to that denomination. And because we're using a smart contract wallet on chain, we can actually lock up the token. Um, in our case, we lock it for three years, but we could lock it for perpetuity. So what that means in practice is if I hand you a Kong note, you can't actually pull the token off of it for three years. So it's not a gift card. It's not a debit card. Um, it really behaves, the goal at least, is it for to behave much more like cash. It's a proxy, it it's a proxy for an on-chain token, correct? Exactly. But that note that you hold for three years is the only thing that can access, or sorry, after three years is the only thing that can access that token. So there's no, um, it, it, it behaves like cash that if you destroy the note, um, if you hand it to somebody else, like it, it behaves exactly like cash. The cash is gone. Um, uh, the token is no longer accessible at that point in time. It's just locked up forever in the contract. Um, so the, the on-chain backing of it um, starts to look like how cash looked like, say, you know, a century ago in the U.S., where there were certain bills that you could actually take to a Federal Reserve, and you would get gold or silver um, based on how much that uh, that note was backed by. So there are like these five dollar silver notes. You can take it in, you get five dollars worth of silver. Um, and so this behaves in a very similar fashion, where you yourself, within three years, can go and say, "Cool, I've got a five Kong note. I can go claim five Kong tokens um, after the three years." Are up if I if I'm the one holding the bill, um, so all of this is just to get people thinking about like what is cash. So so Bitcoin has got people thinking about like what is money, but we kind of decided to go down the path of thinking about well what does cash really represent? 
and not fiat cash, but like when you're actually exchanging cash between two different people, what are you doing? And, and really what it comes down to is you're handing around this transferable debt that's reasonably trustworthy. So you, you accept a 10 US dollar bill or a 10 euro note, you know that you can then go and pay another debt off with that note with somebody else who will accept it. And so we wanted to achieve cash-like characteristics. And so we went down this path of exploring like, okay, how has crypto been turned into cash before? Um, the easiest example of that is people just printing a private key on a piece of paper. Like you can search like Bitcoin private key notes and that's great. It's really cheap. You can go then hand that private key to somebody else. But there's a significant problem of you can't transfer that infinitely across a bunch of different users because anybody can just pull the private key off and then immediately like take the token themselves. So that piece of paper as physical cash becomes worthless after the first transfer. The next step is like, cool, like you could use a hardware wallet, like say a ledger or a treasure, um, but they're pretty expensive. And there's this question around trustworthiness because as we talked about in the first part of the episode, this whole issue of this massive software stack, which you have to trust. So not only is handing somebody a ledger with a hundred bucks on it gonna be really expensive, it'll cost you closer to 200 bucks, um, but there's still questions around, you know, has it been tampered with um, in transit? And a lot of people talk about, you know, evil made attacks or supply chain attacks with hardware wallets. And it's like, yeah, if you get a ledger with a broken seal from Amazon, should you really trust it? And then the last category is, is Java smart cards. And Java smart cards are great because they're fairly cheap. They're designed for to be trustworthy. But um, when you look at the stack of a Java smart card, uh, there's a lot of questions around it. Uh, a, it's, it's fairly antiquated. So they're, they're, the, the whole notion is that these things were literally designed around the same time that Java was 20 years ago. And they're running this whole miniature operating system. Um, and B, you still have to then trust the Java applet that's running on there, that's executing, that's actually doing um, the public-private key math. And, and the problem is looking at a, a huge survey of these smart cards, two things crop up. A, um, they have these APIs that are fairly dangerous uh, because the bank's one of them. Like they have a get private key API. Um, so by the very nature of the operating system, they're typically designed to release their private key material at some point in the life cycle. And B, because they have this full stack, they're just all these crazy attack vectors. Um, you know, there's this one paper by a Russian grad student who surveyed, I think it was 20 of these different cards, and he was able to break all of them, not because he did a direct attack on saying like, oh, I can extract the private keys, but because he was able to do other attacks around, well, if I can convince the card to validate a different set of firmware, then that firmware can use the get private key API and extract the keys out. And so because you have a Again, it's a, effectively a full operating system and a full application stack. Like they're not fully trustworthy for this cash-like purpose. Um, now, a different we can get into talking about like the levels of the guarantees. And so maybe Java smart cards are good for lower cash exchanges. But we started to say, all right, let's start from a clean slate. How would we imagine crypto cash? And and it's several properties. One property is it has to self-generate its private keys from its own entropy source. The second property is by design, it should never be able to leak those private keys at all. And the third property is that it can sign um, random payloads based on that private public key pair. So you, then you can externally validate and say, yes, based on this ECDSA private public key pair, I have the public portion and I can verify that this crypto note signed, you know, one, two, three, four, five. So those three properties, we want to get the, the, 
the device which conforms to those with the, the smallest footprint um, in terms of hardware, software, et cetera, et cetera. And we found that there are these chips on the market, which are called secure element. Secure element is a really broad term. Oh, yeah. um, but there is a handful of them which are capable of doing just this. And they have certain guarantees around, by design, they're never um, going to leak out the private key. By design, they self-generate the private public key pair and, and never hand that out. And they're non-programmable. So you can't write like you know an assembly code or C code program that lives on this thing. Um, all you can do is say, hey, generate these key pairs, give me signatures. Um, they also do like AES, AES encryption operations and stuff, but we don't really care about those. But they're very, very simple um, and, and super rudimentary. And that, those, that rudimentary function means all of a sudden you've just shrunk the attack surface massively for somebody who wants to um, try and break the keys out of one of these. So let me, uh, I have a few things that I'd like to touch on a lot of what you just said. Before that, Paul, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the the issues that we ran into with the first three models of paper wallets or hardware wallets or Java cards all boils down to you can never trust the person issuing it. You can't trust the printer effectively. And that goes back way, way, way back to Cassatius coins even. Like there's no guarantee that the, the person putting the private key underneath the hologram doesn't have a copy of it. Uh, with these chips, we can have the chips self-generate that private key pair and then attest that that key pair was self-generated. And I think for us, that was the critical breakthrough that separates what we've made as a proof of concept with Kong uh, versus the three generations of what are basically physical hardware wallets that came before. I mean, if you can even you can even take that step further and people printing out their own hardware, own paper wallets had issues because printers are so easily hacked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like I, a few of the things that I wanted so to touch on is um, you're optimizing for a lot of transfers. It's you want to make something that is easily transferable across a multitude of people without any one of those people in the middle getting something that doesn't have any value on it. So you can't extract the value for some specific amount of time. And why would Java cards ever be good at that? So uh, a lot of people propose Java cards as a solution for this, but uh, the way they function is much more like uh, gift cards or debit cards. Yeah, I feel as though it's a, it's a, it's just a, it's a, it's an easier way to manage a personal account versus something you should be transferring or handing to other people. Like if there's so yeah, in, I, in all in all of these things, you have to take into account, and I know that you guys understand this because you worked in physical locks. Is physical access to what you're doing. Like the security profile yeah. of whatever you're trying to figure out has to take into account who's going to be using this. And when you try to optimize for something where anyone can use it and transfer it at any time, there pretty much isn't a solution out, out there right now, maybe other than Concash, that that provide that checks all the boxes as needed. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's a really good point, uh, which is like we basically decided to optimize for the harshest security environment. Um, possible to start with, um, because we said, look, you know, if stepping back for a second, so there's Concash and this notion of key storage, but as I kind of alluded to in the beginning of the episode, um, all of these other things that we're talking about, like decentralized services and holding, like not only in cryptocurrency, but like if if I want to have my own um, identity, and and you know, the old school version of this is say PGP, like. I need to have that identity stored securely somewhere. 
Um, and so the, the whole idea with Kong was, okay, if, if we're really worried about this, public-private key storage is going to be everywhere. Like if this works, if this big experiment works, people are going to have to store public-private key pairs everywhere and it needs to be super usable. And so let's start with putting a public-private key pair into the most challenging environment in the purest representation of value, which is cash. So the notion is yes, like it's it's fully auditable to physical attacks at any point in time because any person handing it um, may be able to attack it. But so that's that's kind of pushing the ball forward in terms of you know if we think of these chips right now, they're entirely black boxes. Like the notion of open source chips is like barely in its infancy. It it it, it practically doesn't exist. There are a few people working on it, and so what we're trying to say is hey, like. This actually demonstrates a reason why people should start to care about what the silicon is, where it's made, like who's designing it, who has access to it along every step. Because you're correct, which is maybe there are a lot of applications where we don't need all of these levels of guarantees. But if we start from that premise, um, because these chips have to be general purpose to a certain degree, uh, then like we can get really robust chips into the future for all these different sorts of applications. So yeah, Java smart cards have a role to play, especially when you're not using them in this cache-like form, which is trust from person to person. Um, and they're much more flexible because you can put these applets on them for configuration for different purposes. Um, but we wanted to flip it on, on its head and say, can we isolate down to you know, the smallest iota of trustworthiness, uh, which is this chip with, its, with a certain configuration? Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of other applications moving forward, then if we have enough demand for this and all of a sudden people want crypto cash and there's reasons that crypto cash exists in the world that hopefully will drive a lot of people say, waking up and saying, Hey, like we need to think way more about, uh, what these chips are and all sorts of devices going into them. So the, the chip that we're using on Kong.cash is super common in, um, Google and Amazon IoT devices. So if you want to be a partner and you're building a device for Google IoT or Amazon IoT to plug in their system, use one of these chips. Okay, cool. We all know that there's like <laughs> tons of like security problems uh, with IoT products and the Google and Amazon are trying to remedy that. But all of a sudden, if they're using chips which are easily breakable, like shouldn't we question, um, question the basis of that? And yeah, in terms of like FIDO UTF and sec second factor authentication stuff as well, um, again, the chips going into those, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm sure that YubiKey is thinking about this, but that key pair is giving access to your entire digital life. Like, yeah, yeah, I should, I should be really worried about where that came from and what guarantees are around how it was generated and how it's stored. So, uh, that being said, like, since you guys have gone through like this process and you guys have sort of like jumped into these challenges head first and you've really thought about it, uh, where, what's, what's kind of on the roadmap or what's left for Kong to do to kind of really realize its vision? Is it kind of just getting started in the card and, you know, kind of these physical interfaces are the first way into that? Or like, how do you guys grow from here? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is, uh, we're not we're not diehard advocates that everything should be open and audible. I think there's performance gains to be had in in computing, but we we strongly believe that anything that touches key material should have these auditability characteristics and should provide protections against key extraction if that's what it's set up to do. Um, I mean, at, at a chip level, there's there's very basic trade-offs that you make in performance versus security, right? If if you're hooking up uh, a chip whisperer to these types of devices. 
Um, if the if the secure element is set up incorrectly, then you can very easily leak out the private key as you're doing a, a an operation, a signing operation. Um, so effectively, one one hack that Rambus has done is for every operation you do the inverse operation simultaneously. And basically, if you look at the the power analysis now, you, all you're seeing is this white block of noise. You're not seeing very distinct blocks of computation. Um, there, there's a thousand more tricks like that, but all of them devolve into having your your computational performance or more as as that has to take up heat and and transistors and everything else there. So I think it's it's trying to figure out how we can silo um, the key operations back to getting into a secure BIOS and then a secure operating system and a chain of trust all the way up to these environments that that matter. But Kong is is the most uh, basic proof of concept of how we can anchor a very secure uh, software execution environment in the form of code that's running on the EVM. I mean, that's basically un untamperable for the most part to uh, something that's a uh, very difficult to, to tamper with physical chip. So you combine those two things and you just kind of skip all of the firmware and software and operating stuff, stuff in the middle, then you have a pretty interesting device uh, and that that device we generally just call a, a, a silo, a silicon locked contract. Uh, so anything that you can program into a smart contract that you want to have a physical chip present to sign off on, you can do. Uh, the Kong is a proof of concept of that idea in the form of how we can make a cash like instrument. But we've also explored this in the in the way of doing a personal identity instrument or a debit card instrument or, or anything that's more sophisticated that uh, you could code up into a smart contract that somebody hasn't really thought of yet um, that starts taking on these sort of post-cash-like properties. But for us, it's it's getting this idea across. This is probably the most secure uh, way to do things. And if we can make better chips and more open chips, it's particularly in the domain of that touch key material, then we can actually uh, start, start doing some really crazy stuff with third-party computation that is non-tamperable. So would you guys consider yourself the product company or would you guys consider yourself like a hardware chip design sort of like outfit in, in its smallest <laughs> form at the time? Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about chips, um, but you know, I think coming back to Kong.cash, so we we did this really deep dive down this this idea of like open chips and secure elements. And um, you know, one piece there is we never believe that any chip will be perfectly secure. That's the thing we went through doing 10 years of Locketron. Like there's no security product which will, <laughs> will always be perfectly secure, but it's all about quantifying the costs uh, around like, you know, is something more expensive to attack or less expensive? And our broader goal in the space is that we start to build chips where you can, you have very clear cut quantified costs around, you know, maybe it costs $100 to pull the private key off of one chip, but $10,000 in equipment, time, et cetera the keys off another chip. But jumping back up to the product level of, of, of Kong Cash and, and what we're thinking there, um, really, when we created it, we all of a sudden realized, you know, this, this radically changes how people can start to think about and handle crypto. And so we are a product company that's really built, built on um, creating super usable crypto because we can get reasonably good trustworthiness guarantees from these security pieces. So all of a sudden, like, yes, I can get a Kong cash note, one, 105, and I can hand it to a family member. I can hand it to a shopkeeper 
And crypto is tangible for them. For the first time ever, this far off idea, you know, everybody has talked about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Hundreds of millions of people have heard about these things. They know what cryptocurrencies are. That's this off distant thing that's coming in the future. And all of a sudden, you can hand it to them fully formed and they control their own keys in the same way that was always intended uh, with Bitcoin in the beginning. You know, like you're not handing them a thing where there's this third party custodian that can pull the token off or lose it or, you know, implode, whatever it is. All of a sudden, um, this physical product embodies the, the ethos that, you know, at least I come to believe with cryptocurrencies, which is, yeah, hold your own keys. Um, but you can do it super easily in this form factor that, that someone uh, touches and they feel and they understand intimately. Billions of people know what physical cash is. They know what it feels like. They understand that they can get things for it. So Kong Cash is all about like, how can we now take you know, this fundamental base that we've built around the chip? Yes, there need to be improvements there. And yes, we need to keep thinking about it. But how can we take that and start to create these physical experiences that are radically different? If I hand a ledger to my dad, he has no clue what to do with it. But if I hand him a note fully formed and say, yeah, you know, like in the same way that you know that a euro is valuable, but maybe you can't spend it immediately, this cryptocurrency is like that. Like, yes, maybe you can't spend this immediately. You can't take it down to the, the shop down the street and buy something. But people in other parts of the world might start to accept it. And all of a sudden, you know, one Kong might represent a bottle of water. Ten Kong might represent a meal. Um, like all of a sudden you start to break down this, this notion of like crypto is purely for speculative value and purely for store value. And, and, and you can actually start to use it as this means of exchange, you know, and, and going back to sort of the 2011 scenario, the last time that happened was when people were on Silk Road, you know, buying, <laughs> buying drugs and, and guns and illicit stuff. But maybe all of a sudden everyday people who aren't super technical um, who don't necessarily, or maybe they want to use it for nefarious purposes, but they want to use it for everyday stuff can start to do that. And so that's, that's the broader mission of Kong is, is to build products like that using these fundamental security underpinnings. Through this process, um, obviously, of course, you guys have like iterated a lot and you come with a lot of experience. Um, I guess what would be something that you would leave the audience or uh, to other like entrepreneurs who are, you know, looking to maybe guide themselves down the path of exploring like secure hardware and to like kind of like jump into that like mode? Like what's what, what's something that's important that uh, everyone should take from your journey? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is sort of non-helpful advice, but it's it's just looking at your blind spots, right? It's like, <laughs> obviously, you can't figure out what your blind spots are. But uh, for us with Kong, like how we arrived on the spot, we're like, we're looking at financial transactions and, and physical cash. Well, it's only about 5 or 10% of most monetary supplies. It's about 50% of every petty goods transaction. Like most transactions are in taking, taking place in cash and most of the economies that we're talking about crypto taking over the world. And yet crypto has no cash instrument. So we saw this was just, okay, a, a huge opportunity and a huge blind spot in the space generally. We should fix that five years ago, uh, but better late than never. Um, but I think there, there's lots of opportunities like that about uh, general financial instruments that we're all going to start uh, replicating in a decentralized fashion. And whether that's cash or bonds or checks or all these more exotics, I think there's tons of opportunity space there. And we think that you can do that with with the silo concept that we, we've come up with and that's coming out in our paper this week. But um, yeah, that's 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 what I would say. That being said, you guys are like uh, have like a you know a proper paper and everything coming out. When that does come out, where can uh, people in the audience go to find that? 
Yeah, so kong.cash is our URL and Kong is cash is our Twitter. Uh, it's mm -hmm. probably the two best ways to, to find us. Otherwise, Cameron and I keep a pretty low profile online. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And so, you know, thanks for thanks for coming on to, to break us down like myself when I met you guys in person and I got my hands on those physical bills. You know, like I was so giddy to like be able to play with it. I was really excited <laughs> about the potential. Um, you know, I've been giving them away to like all of my really cool like tech nerdy friends um, since then, and everyone that I've handed it to, like, ah oh, man, this is this is awesome. This is it. This is what we need. Um, so I'm really excited to see where this evolves and kind of like goes into like going forward in the future. What other sort of awesome like interesting futuristic instruments can end up on those devices. Um, so that being said, you know, thanks for coming on the show. And, um, you know, once you guys have like gained some more traction and have, uh, come out with some more really cool instruments, maybe like C die on these bills or whatever, like come back in the future and we can, uh, sort of riff more about, uh, kind of what are the next implications? Awesome. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Steven. Thanks, Corey. No yep. Thanks. Like the last dog, how the fuck I last y'all? Silence is my last song. How the fuck I pass y'all? And they got better than that, but even the better than getting it back. I'm passing that bullet, that bullet, that strap. I'm raving that bullet, that bullet, like flat. Well, have y'all reaching? I don't wanna hold me back. These niggas can't hold me back. All I want is my homie back. These niggas can't hold me that. No, these niggas keep reading, nigga. Think these reasons only rapping to hold me back, but they.